This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Hilary Harper here with Life Matters, coming to you from NAM. You might take adulthood for granted, moving through your life, looking after your responsibilities, getting stuff done. But for others, questions can creep in. Why don't I feel grown up enough? Am I doing this right? We'll get to the essence of adulthood a little later. But first, what makes a good piece of public art? to public artworks, plenty of things have got Australians talking. It can be hard to please everyone. What do you think makes for good public art? Is it about the process of deciding on the work or more about what it looks like when it's there? And if you've got a favourite public artwork from near you or elsewhere around Australia, let me know because public art can really liven up a neighbourhood and get people talking. I'd love to know what has done that for you. Someone who's been doing this for years is Sean Hossack. He runs a street art network called Juddy Roller. Sean, hi. G'day, how you going? Good, I'm looking forward to having a chat about the silo artworks that you uh, help get off the ground, literally, in a little while. But we've also got with us today Abdul Abdullah. He's been turning his attention to public art a lot lately, following a very high-profile commission, one that a lot of people will see every day. Abdul, welcome to Life Matters. Hey, g'day. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure. Now, it's been announced that you've been commissioned to do artwork at the new Arden Station in North Melbourne, one of the new Metro Loop stations. How are you feeling about that? I'm pretty excited. And, and you're right about feeling a, a greater sense of responsibility because it's going to be seen by so many people. And so many people aren't really going to have much of a choice when they go to the station, uh, whether or not they see it. Does that shape the kind of thing that you plan to put there? Yeah, definitely. Like uh, my visual language has to had to be a lot broader, and my intention has to be quite, you know, quite soft, and with the intention of having uh, having the work have you know greater, broad appeal. So it'll be in the train station. Is it going to be in one of the the walkways or somewhere that that is completely unavoidable? Uh, it's a giant facade outside the building. So as you approach the station, are you going to see it from a way off? Wow, so it's not just travellers, it's it's people around the area as well. Yeah, it's definitely going to become part of the streetscape. So, Abdul, when, when you make art generally, your art, do you make it with a particular viewer in mind? Yeah, generally I have. And in the past, I've thought about who the work is in service for, service of and who, who I'm thinking about when I make the work. And generally it's been that 12 or 13-year-old version of me who's living in like whether it's Sunshine or East Cannington in Perth where I grew up, who is living on the outer fringes or living on the peripheries. But in the case of public art, I've had to centralise that a little bit. So it's I've got a slightly different intention with this work. So how does that work when you when you take the, the work that you've been used to making and the drive that you take to the art for that person and and for that effect and go, okay, now it's for everyone in a part of inner <laughs> Melbourne? Well, I've been benefited by, like, oh, since 2017, I've been really lucky that most of the projects I've worked on have been overseas. So I've kind of been forced to use a broader visual language, something a little bit more universal, things that are less Australian-specific. And Although I'm using quite Australian-specific signifiers in this work, I've thought about that broader language and, and you know, speaking to more people. For people who aren't familiar with your work, Abdul Abdullah, can you uh, describe some of the the works that stand out for you that you really like? Yeah, so I work primarily with painting, but also photography and installation and sculpture and embroidery. So I work across the board, 
And um, the the a through line that's existed in my work is exploring the tension between a person's lived experience and the perception of that experience from the outside. Uh, so the idea of othering and, and the tension that's created there. Uh, but with this work, I'm thinking more about uh, cohesion and coming together. And I understand that the brief was it has to be relevant for 100 years, so no pressure there, obviously. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How do yeah. you do that? Oh, the, the easiest way for me to do that or the, the most obvious way for me to do that was to look at the last 100 years and to look further back than that. So the work is going to reference the history of the site, the history of the space, and then looking back like a pre-colonial history and what the space looked at like beforehand. Australia is a really interesting uh, place to make art in that sense, isn't it, Abdul Abdullah? Because there's a tradition of art stretching back millennia and then there's yeah. this rupture and a whole different set of meanings around art is suddenly introduced. How do you navigate that? Oh, that's that's a big question to navigate. That's yeah. a, probably a bigger question than I can really answer. It's something I haven't worked out entirely, but it's certainly a, a, we can all acknowledge that history and sort of yeah, and, and apply that acknowledgement to the work we produce and, and how we go about making work in this country. We're speaking with Abdul Abdullah, who's just been commissioned to do an art at, but outside, one of the new stations that's being built around inner city Melbourne as a giant public artwork on a wall. Abdul, uh, can you uh, uh, talk a little bit about the the way you make art outside a gallery? Is that something that you've already turned your mind to as an artist? It's something I've turned to my mind to, but working at this scale is pretty new to me. Um, and there's something about working space, making work for a gallery, whether it be an institution or a commercial space. And I was thinking about it the other day where people consent to walking into those spaces and there's an implicit consent that they're going to be challenged by the work. Um, but with a piece of public art, that consent isn't necessarily there. It's something they're going to come across anyway. So it's a responsibility of the artist, I think, in this sense to to acknowledge that and to make work with that in mind. Um, yeah. yeah. I was really struck by the phrase you used before, the art that you make is in service to particular people, a kind of imagined viewer. That's a really interesting uh, way to think about the, the role of the public art that you make. Is that something that, that drives you? Yeah, absolutely. Like before I studied art, I studied journalism and uh, I think they serve a similar similar function for me anyway, um, but without being burdened by any pretense of objectivity. So I can kind of be as reactive and emotional as I like and I, I enjoy that space. Yeah, burdened by objectivity. That's another phrase I'll be noting down for use later. <laughs> so how confrontational can you be, Abdul, if you're making art that's been commissioned by the government, sanctioned in some way? Is that a constraint for you? Um, it's, it's just a way of working. It's not the way that I'd work if I was making work for a, 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 like a museum or a commercial gallery, but it is a, a, just a different way of working. And there's so many checks and balances, like the, the proposal that I put forward, uh, has gone through many iterations and has to go through a whole series of, uh, different panels and people who, who question and pull it apart and look at the details and, and see if it's how a 
potentially offensive it could be. And, and I think it's gone through all those processes. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to showing people what gets made. Yeah, I can't wait to see it when it when it finally sees the light of day. Abdul, just finally, should a, a public art work be made to endure, do you think? Or, or can it just represent a moment in time? Because when I, when I heard about this commission, I thought about the giant mural that used to be at Spencer Street train station and is now kind of hidden away at a shopping mall that was about the history of transport. So it's, you know, it was from 1835 to 1935. It's hugely out of date now, but it's so fascinating. Do you, would you like your art to kind of last down the ages for the next hundred years or just to be a snapshot? Oh, that that mural does sound really fantastic. And I, and I think it's different for every art, uh, public art project. Like some things are meant to be just temporary or snapshots in time. Uh, as part of the briefing with this one, um, with all the the engineering that goes into it and the material quality and that sort of thing, I had to design something which is going to last. Yep. So that's the brief. That's what you're doing. Well, it's been really yeah. interesting hearing about these glimpses, tantalizing glimpses of, of what it might be like. Uh, Abdul, thanks so much for your time on Life Matters. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Abdul Abdullah, who's the artist who's been commissioned to do a big artwork at Arden Station, one of the new stations being built in inner city Melbourne, in North Melbourne in this case. And you're listening to Life Matters on ABCRN. We're uh, talking about public art today, and I'd very much like to hear your thoughts on what makes for good public art Is that something you can define? And perhaps you can tell us an example from somewhere you've seen, uh, particularly somewhere in Australia, uh, whether it's your local area or somewhere else, that really grabbed you, that really made you go, I'm thinking about that now. I'm talking about it. I'm interested in that. Uh, Some texts on silo art, which is the specialty of our next guest, Sean Hossack. Uh, One says, my favourite public art is silo art. I recently visited the small town of Monto in central Queensland. The silo art was spectacular and really reflected the spirit of the town. And another text says, Australia's silo art transforms something industrial into something beautiful and meaningful, and it gives the towns an identity while connecting them across the country. Sean Hossack, uh, founder and creative director at Juddy Roller Art Art uh, Outfit. How do you feel about those texts? Uh, look, it's overwhelmingly positive, which is really nice to hear. Sometimes you're so involved with everything, you forget how much meaning and power these artworks have for the people that view them. So it's really nice to hear that. And t- tell us a bit of background too. How did you get involved in public art? I, was a, I grew up in a country town called Benalla and in actuality I was completely starved of any public art whatsoever. I did love art but I really didn't have a way to connect with it. Um, you know, we had a we had a wonderful art gallery but it really represented like a time gone by. It was rolling hills and sheep and paint, beautiful paintings of, of uh, wool sheds and whatnot but none of that really appealed to me. So, Eventually, as I always knew I would, I'd have to go to a bigger place, which was Melbourne. And when I got there, the Melbourne street art scene was just bubbling. Um, it was it hadn't really evolved into anything. It was a lot of stencils, and you know, a lot of famous people like Banksy or Shepherd Ferry hadn't yet become household names. Uh, but once I discovered this underground art form, I become obsessed with it, and um, it just you know slowly took over my life. I suppose, I, and it evolved from there. I, it's really interesting that you say you were starved of culture in Benalla because I lived for a time in Euroa, which is very close to Benalla, and we were really jealous yeah. of the art gallery there. It's like, oh, my God, they've got this great art gallery Look, with, you know, something no, other than sheep. 
Absolutely no doubt about it. It's a, it's a beautiful art gallery, but for me as a young um, teenager, I couldn't necessarily relate to a lot of the works that were going through there. That's not to say that there wasn't some amazing stuff that did inspire me there as well. I just thought there could be more youth-orientated, future-bound artwork. Well, yeah, there's other factors too, aren't there, Sean, like class that dictates who has art in their lives and who doesn't. What effect does it have on people if they grow up with that sense that art is not for them? I think that's a really fantastic question that you just asked me because – in actuality, I think maybe growing up in the country, you know, from a, a working class family, I don't necessarily think that I was 100% comfortable walking into those environments, which for me is what's so special about public art because you can you can enjoy it without having to step into what sometimes can be quite an intimidating or sterile environment. You don't have to actually leave the street or the town that you're in. You can go and participate without feeling like an outsider. Well, there's a lot of people who are very engaged with public art, it turns out, from our text line and our phone lines. Anne's called from New South Wales. Hi, Anne. Oh, hello there, Hilary. Um, yes, I'd like to mention an artist, a sculptor called Petra Spronk. Mm-hmm. He has a wonderful name and a wonderful sense of humour in his work, which you would appreciate, Hilary, because you have a great wit as well. Oh, thanks, Anne. Um, I, I enjoy that, yes. His piece is on the street in Melbourne, and it's a replica of a corner of a building. Oh, the state so library? The that, that's poking uh, out of the ground? Yeah, that would be it. Yes, that's right. So what I like about it is um, the sense of humour that he brought to a lot of his earlier work. Of course, you look at the piece on the ground and then you have to look up as though it's fallen off the... Is it the library? Is it? It's fallen off the library, but it hasn't, of course. But it makes you look up. And it's... Uh, and it also makes you look away from the art piece, which I like as well. It's interesting, isn't it, Anne? It makes you look differently at your surroundings and think differently about the way you are in the city. Well, yes, and just where did this come from? Yeah. Right? So has, you know, where did it come from? In just that split second in your mind, did it, obviously it hasn't fallen off the building, but, but there's a bit in your mind that will say that something off a building, right? And yeah. it makes you look away. And he he brings that wonderful, quirky sense of humour to a lot of his earlier work. Yes, it's very um, surprising. He, I always felt like it was emerging from the footpath, this giant kind of pointy monumental grey thing. Oh, it, right. Yeah. Oh, right. T- tip of an iceberg kind of thing. Exactly, yes. Culture no. underground somehow, but a particular kind oh. of culture. And thanks for that. That's a great example. You're S- welcome. Thank you. Uh, Jennifer's in Toowoomba. What's happening in Toowoomba when it comes to public art? Oh, there's a lot of public art here. There's lots of murals, and uh, I've been a long-term advocate of community-led public art mm-hmm. has community ownership because sometimes you just get plonk art plonked in without any thought of the long-term thinking and planning, as you heard from Abdullah, how much planning goes into public art. After the floods in 2011 in Toowoomba, Arts Council Toowoomba came up with a a project called Splashing Back to use the sort of tile, how our tiles splash back the water. Mm. And it was definitely community-led. We talked to uh, over 20 businesses in Toowoomba that had been severely impacted by those floods you would have seen on television in 2011. And we had two years of planning before we finally got the 10 mosaics by 10 different local artists, which I think is important too, using local artists. 
They're mosaics on the wall with QR codes in them that tell the story of the community cohesion and how the floods brought people together and how the artists then interpreted the business's story in the mosaic artwork. So that's my favourite piece of public art in Toowoomba because the stories will live on permanently in those mosaics and even though QR codes weren't very popular in the 2011-2012 time, those stories still live on and now the QR codes are more ubiquitous. Yes, yes, we've all got used to them a bit more. That's a great story, Jennifer. Thanks for that. And it's, it's obviously so knitted into the local community. It's very place-specific. Sean Hossack, um, I was reading recently that art patron John Caldor thinks that all art, including public art, should have this kind of educative element. It should be about encouraging people to look at art fresh without prejudice, but as Jennifer says, it, uh, it can also teach people about a region. Do you think that's, that's true? Is that a good uh, thing for public art to, to have with it? You know, we shouldn't really pigeonhole it what art should be or should do, because obviously art, you know, ultimately represents a diversity of culture and society. But I do think educating people about um, any topic through art is a great way to engage. Um, I think, you know, when you when you look at the Silo Art Trail, a lot of those communities really want to hold on to a lot of their past and their history. Hence, a lot of the communities want that represented um, in the artworks. But on the other hand, I feel that to an extent that can be limiting because it doesn't allow a more future-focused thought process to um, come through the artwork. And so perhaps it can be really focused on nostalgia rather than the future of a community, perhaps. Yeah, so is that about the way that public art is viewed, the, the function of it, as more a kind of museum focus? You know, it memorialises things, it sets things in stone, historically speaking, as opposed to something provocative and thought-provoking? Wow, that's a very good question. I suppose being provocative in a public space is a lot more has a lot more challenges than it than being provocative in a gallery setting. So to an extent, I suppose the artist is constricted, but I do think that you know art should challenge people. Growing up in the country, I always felt stifled, and I always felt like you know everybody wants to hold on to their their history so much that they forget about my future or in in presently the the children and the teenagers are living now there now and i feel that if you don't focus on their future and you only focus on your past those children ultimately are going to go elsewhere because the world's moving forward and these small communities in particular need to move forward with it and so i think if it focuses on memorializing memorializing the history it's going to miss the mark. When I started, much like Abdul, I wanted to uh, inspire youth, pe- youthful people, people that felt like they were potentially on the outside. And so I think by creating a, a, a memorial of times gone by, you're not necessarily missing you, – you're potentially missing the point and uh, you may be capturing a particular demographic and audience, but you might be missing the most important – one, which is the youth and the future of your town or community. 
And we're speaking with Sean Hossack, who's the founder and creative director of an outfit called Juddy Roller, which is involved in a lot of public art, street art, silo art. Sean, it sounds like it was it was uh, pretty uh, controversial just starting the conversation with some of the towns about putting art on the silos. How much negotiation was involved originally? The first one was the Brim Silo, uh, which is now hugely iconic, and it was a massive success because it captured the essence of the struggle of the Australian farmer. Um, And I won't lie, it took a few goes actually to get anybody to listen. First it was, you know, we called one of the grain companies and I, you know, I started the conversation and then it just fell flat. And and then eight months later, I'm like, nah, this is going to happen. So eventually they introduced me to the community of Brim. Um, And at that stage, nobody really knew what to expect. But the artist we worked with, Guido Van Helton, had had such a uh, rich and vast history of working with communities predominantly overseas and representing them in a very uh, authentic manner. So to begin with, that one was not as hard as it could have been, but... We've, we've gone on to commission and, and curate and produce about 40 more since then. And so to varying degrees, they can be easy, they can be hard. It really depends on the community, the community group, uh, the artist's expectations um, and and what, what the expectations of the, the governing body are. Well, so yeah, I mean, because of, it's been such a, a successful of, movement, hasn't it, Sean? And, and it's increased tourism to a lot of towns. In the conversations that you had later on, did you find people were saying, we want that because it's going to have economic benefits rather than focusing on the art aspect of it? No, look, to be honest, I, I, I really believe in the economic benefits. And often I'll have a community say, well, look, this is what represents us. And it might be like, their sports team, a particular animal, and uh, let's say a grain that they grow. And I say, well, look, that's fantastic, but that also represents another town not too far away. Is there any way we can do something a bit more interesting and challenging? And some some communities take up that challenge and really get behind it and want something unique and fun, which I think is very important. And then others prefer to err on the side of caution and go with something a little bit more... Uh, conservative. What are some of the What's unique that? and fun things that people have come up with? Well, look, recently there was a an artist was asked to paint a town hero, which is not and and from a from a historical reference point. Now, this artist is an amazing um, international portrait artist, and so he usually would never paint somebody that he can't photograph um, and himself, so he can get all those amazing and important details and whatnot. But that wasn't going to be possible, and the community had their hearts set on it. So he came up with a, an interesting concept, and that was – so the, his name was Roly. He was a tennis coach, uh, and he was well-loved by everybody, and he had a, a watch and a, a terry toweling on always. And so the artist decided that he would represent Roly as an invisible man that everybody could recognize without actually having to paint from these old, worn-out, black-and-white pictures. Oh. That's great. Local character writ large. Um, yes. Let's let's hear from a couple more of our listeners because there are quite a few people with their beloved public artworks who want to chat to us, Sean. Barbara's on the line from Glebe in Sydney. Hi, Barbara. Oh, hello. Um, I'd like to celebrate something that's quite, I think, was a humbly meant offering but has caused so much joy in the community in Glebe and Newtown. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a gentleman who uh, posts up uh, 
A4 size of his own paintings of flowers. I first noticed this in outside the Hikaru restaurant in Newtown about a year ago. There was one painting of flowers, and uh, but he's lately he's he's donated his works around Glebe. There are probably many more I haven't picked up on, and now he's the one painting in outside the Hikaru restaurant has grown to four, oh. and the joy that it's causing. I can read on Glebe locals occasionally. It's as if he's presenting bouquets to the community and just so simple and humble. Barbara, thanks for your call. Pleasure. Uh, Brendan's called in from Northcote in Melbourne. Uh, Brendan, a Keith Haring artwork. Tell us about that. Yes, there's a, a massive Keith Haring artwork in Johnson Street, Collingwood, on the what was the Collingwood Tech school building. Um, he was visiting Melbourne in the 80s. Um, he had AIDS, HIV, as it was known then. And the Victorian AIDS Council was just next door almost. Anyway, he painted this mural for the kids. He chatted with the kids at the school for a while and then just went to work and they gave him complete freedom to do whatever he wanted and he came up with something which lives today as one of the few pieces left of his exterior works that there are definitely one of the largest and it's well looked after and maintained by a loving community. Isn't that lovely? And I think what that stresses is that many are, many of like this around the corner is the housing commission flats which which has a mural running up the 20 floors. It's it's high, very high quality but it looks a bit like what a committee had designed. It tries to represent exactly each type of person. It's, and which it does, it has all the usual characters you'd expect to live in, who do live in housing commission flats at the moment. But they do look like they've been designed by a committee. I, I, my wish is for artists to be given more freedom to ex express their art in their way so that it really, so that they can push themselves to be creative. That's a really interesting Not point, Brendan. I want to put that to Sean Hossack. How how well do you think we're doing public art in Australia at the moment, Sean? Well, look, it's interesting you brought that particular mural up because that's a project that I worked on. <laughs> well, it's a project that I that I worked on for three years. It took about three years to get together in about oh, three and a half weeks for the artist Adnate to paint. Um, look, how are we doing? I've always tried to keep and uh, I've always tried to just look around at what's happening all over the world um, as a guide for me because I feel too often we get caught up with what's happening in our own backyard. Um, I think the previous caller definitely has a point. Um, there are, you know, when you're when you have the opportunity to paint a twenty-story public housing building that's commissioned by the government there are obviously constraints but i will say that there wasn't actually any committee that you know selected that work we we decided that we needed to best represent that community you know because it was such a sensitive area and environment to work with um so it wasn't as constrained as you may have believed but i do understand completely where he's coming from but ultimately, I think we're doing great. I think it's fantastic that the silo art movement has caught on. Um, public art in regional areas is probably a phenomenon that hasn't really happened in any 
major form uh, or anything that would um, to the same scale as what's happening in Australia now. It's really quite phenomenal. Um, so I think in that respect, it's fantastic. But I do think we've got a long way to go, and I think we need to keep educating our new uh, art lovers, um, all of these these people in the regions, um, to get a little bit more open-minded and to challenge them with new forms of artwork rather than just representational figurative stuff. Um, it'd be great to see more Aboriginal work, more work by female artists, more abstraction, but but also um, stuff that they can uh, love and, and uh, get behind as well. Mm, on that, it's really interesting. We've got a, a bunch of texts suddenly come in, uh, Sean. Anthony said Warwick in Queensland has wrapped the town in, he says, kindred wool. I'm not sure what that is, but wrapped it in wool anyway. Uh, someone else says, as, as a rural dweller, the public art I most love is homemade, often letterboxes or random decorated logs, etc., on roads that get very little use. Obviously, people are driven to create. That's from Roger. Julie says, I would hope public art brings reflection on the human condition, hopefully more provocative than pretty. And uh, one person says, I love Fido, Fairfield Industrial Dog Object in Fairfield in Victoria. Very controversial when it was created in 1999, but very identifiable with the local community. And sometimes time can be a great leveller, can't it, Sean? People get used to things and suddenly go, that's ours and we love it. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Are there particular things that stand out for you, Sean, that you really love in the way of public art around Australia? Um, look, I love anybody that's doing something more daring and challenging because I do believe uh, what one of those text messages said, that it should be provocative, it should be thought-provoking rather than pretty. It's unfortunate that we do get caught up on pretty, but it is public art, so we don't want to you know, we don't want to put too much uh, messaging or propaganda even in front of people's uh, faces without their permission. So I do understand. But anything that's thought-provoking um, and challenging and, and makes the, the viewer step out of their everyday life and see the world in a new and interesting, exciting way. Anything that challenges the viewer um, gets my vote. Yes, indeed. Howie from Byron Bay. Hi, Howie. Hi, how you doing? Good. Now you're an artist yourself. What are you involved with? Yeah, I just, I, I suppose, I was uh, just wanting to put the point about um, creating art freely around the. Uh, for me, it's been freely around the world, painting whales all around the world. I started out in 1977 painting a hundred foot blue whale down Queen Street, the main street of Auckland, and the public fell in love not so much with the painting I guess but with the idea of having a, a big presence of that sort of representation of hope into the future and and, it, and in the last 20 years I've been attending international whaling commissions and painting all over the world wherever I go so um, I guess I'm just yeah I just wanted to make a point about I think uh, people just getting out there and hitting walls um, is all part of the equation as well. Yeah, and it's interesting that you're using that to to transmit hope as well as a call to action. Oh, very much. I mean, when I'm painting whales, I'm always painting a mother and a calf as essential uh, take-off point for any mural that represents hope into the future. And it always freaks me out slightly when I see things where it's a single whale. Howie, thanks for sharing that story with us and the bird song, gorgeous, from Byron Bay there. Quick call from Christopher from Boona. Hi, Christopher. G'day, how are you going? Good. We've got a couple of minutes to chat to you. Well, I've been doing public art for about uh, 30 years now and I've been in a, a lovely position to be able to do my art full-time and I've done works that are kind of engaging to a really broad cross-section of the community because I use found objects that come from 
lots of in different industries. I guess one of the most popular works, I guess, is the kangaroos I did in the city about 20 years ago in Brisbane. And um, they're a, a lovely work that talks about sharing space with our natives. So we've got this group of kangaroos that are just relaxing in the middle of Brisbane in the hearth. So that's a, a fun work. But I've also done um, an, an, a few other works around Queensland and one that is of particular interest that engages, um, has engaged the community, the Tambo truck out of Tambo. And I took this um, local truck that belonged to the community and transformed it into this big, long sort of like kids' toy truck that referenced the, the wool days. And uh, I was actually able to uh, get even school kids along to donate materials that then they can show their kids and their grandkids in the future that they actually uh, contributed to the artwork, which is a lovely thing. That is lovely. And Christopher, it's been wonderful hearing from artists who do public art today, as well as members of the public who view it and have opinions of it and engage with it. Uh, Sean, thanks so much for joining us today and uh, chatting with our callers. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Sean Hossack, director of Juddy Roller Studios, and earlier, artist Abdul Abdullah. We spoke to them and some of you during ABC Arts Week back in August. Next up, Erica Voles finds out why so many of us don't feel like grown-ups. This is ABC RN. So one day, our next guest, UK journalist Moya Sana, was in her kitchen. She opened her bin to throw something away and she saw maggots chewing away at the food in her bin. Well, first of all, she freaked out. And then she texted her mum for help. Then she had a realisation that she actually didn't feel very adult. And this set her on a new life path and also prompted her to write her first book. It's called when I Grow Up, Conversations with Adults in Search of Adulthood. Moya Sana, welcome to Life Matters. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Opening a bin, it doesn't normally lead to an epiphany, but there you were, having one in your kitchen. Can you tell me what was going on in your mind at that moment? Yes, I think I was in a state of kind of panic. Um, I had opened this bin and I, I could see the underside of the lid was covered in sort of white stuff and I was like what's that is that rice and then it started moving and I nearly threw up and I realized it was these maggots and I thought well what am I going to do about that and I immediately texted my mother to ask her advice and it was like Google had never been invented and I just had none of my own kind of internal resources to rely on and It was one of many moments uh, at that time in my life where I just thought, wow, I'm really not a grown-up. A grown-up would know how to deal with this. And, you know, I think a lot of the kind of conversations about adulthood and delayed adulthood um, in our societies, they tend to revolve around kind of big milestones like getting married or having children or buying a house or getting a job, these sorts of things, buying white goods. And I started thinking about a different kind of definition or looking for a different kind of definition, one that is more around a a sense of oneself 
um, a kind of solidity and a separateness from others and a, a sort of capacity to rely on oneself uh, and to look after oneself. So a bit um, of an internal kind of resilience because, I mean, the interesting thing is, you know, you're married at this point in time, you're holding down a job, mm. you know, you had the house and all of that kind of thing, but you're the, the kind of... The thesis that you've come to is something much more internal. But Moya, you you decided that you needed to talk to lots of other people about this situation to see if if other people were kind of feeling almost like an imposter syndrome around the the issue of adulthood. And so you delved in pretty deep and you kind of delved into these ambivalent feelings that some people have about adulthood. Spoke to dozens of people, ordinary folk as well as experts. Now, some might assume this is a first world problem or a very millennial problem. But what did you find about the age range of people experiencing a bit of a dilemma around adulthood? Yeah, so I decided that this book would start with the first chapter at age 18, speaking to um, kind of older adolescents and that it would end in old age. And I kind of thought up to around midlife, probably I'm going to find a lot of people who, like me, don't feel like adults. But once you get into old age then I'm going to be dealing with cut and dried adults. Um, but that was not what I found. And, uh, you know, I interviewed a historian of old age who pointed out that actually it is something that people tend to do to stereotype older people and assume that they have the same sort of thoughts and experiences and feelings as all other old people. And that's not the case at all. The reality is much richer, much more interesting than that. And that is what I found as I spoke to people in their 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s. I love, I love the fact that... still didn't feel like adults. I love that about your book, that there are people in their 90s who still mm. don't feel like adults. So this does cross generations, but it is also something that's more acute in the millennial generation. And in fact, you spoke to Australian sociologist Harry Bladderer about what's going on for this particular generation. What was his take? Incidentally, he's the one who told me about this quiz that he'd found in, in his research, this are you an adult quiz? And you had to turn to, I think it was page 137 to find out the results. Um, and yeah, I just wish that you know, being an adult could be determined by a quiz. I, I don't think it's that straightforward, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately. Um, but his perspective was one of how much things have changed, how much our society has changed, that adulthood was kind of an easier question to answer when we had a really clear idea of what it consisted of. You know, when jobs were easier to get and um, you could kind of support a family on on a, a job that was easier to get and, and that uh, the life course was kind of more set out for you. And now it's not quite the same. Now we have to kind of make up our own definitions and find our own way. And that can be a bit more unsettling. Because some of it is going on within the person and some of it is structural and, uh, you know, cost of housing, insecurity of work. How much are those factors playing into this situation? The fact that, you know, it is actually hard to be an adult when you can't get a job and when you actually can't afford to move out of home. Absolutely. It's a kind of financial infantilization um, because I do think that, you know, sometimes there are conditions that uh, facilitate growing up. 
that can be a kind of fertile soil for growth and development. Um, you know, the capacity to live an independent life, to have your own space, uh, to be able to support a family, um, you know, to, to survive off a salary. Um, however, I do think that sometimes a, a kind of switcheroo happens where people think that that is what constitutes adulthood. And I don't think that's quite right, because as we discussed, you know, I, I did, I had ticked those boxes in the adulthood quiz. Um, and so had, you know, most of the people that I spoke to in the 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s. Um, but there was still uh, space for growth, still room for development, still something that didn't feel quite grown up and, and um, a kind of well, what I discovered is that actually, if you see adulthood as a finish line, as a set of boxes to be ticked, then your life is all the poorer for it, really, because uh, what really keeps us alive um, is continual growth and development. That's what keeps our brains alive and our minds alive and our lives really rich. And I, I guess the flip side of this, though, Moya, is why is this so important? I mean, is it just a label? What is the difference if people don't feel like they're adults? I think that actually adulthood does matter. It's not just a label. Um, I think that being an adult brings with it a sense of freedom, or it can do, um, a sense of knowing your own mind. At least this is the kind of definition of adulthood that I came to. You know, a, a sense of who you are, of not hiding from yourself, uh, the capacity to be kind. Um, to be understanding and sensitive, tolerant of difference, to understand that things aren't black and white, there's nuance. You know, I think these, these are all qualities that we develop if we do have the capacity to grow and to inhabit kind of more adult states of mind. And Moyasana, I think if you look at adulthood in that way, it actually requires a lot more thought. I mean, we kind of look out at society and look at the externalities and tick boxes about other people around us. You know, that's what we're like. We're social creatures. But that actually requires a much more mature engagement. I mean, Moyasana, you speak with a lot of people in your book, um, some of them who've had adverse life events, um, such as the death of a parent early on. How does that influence their trajectory when they head into adulthood? I'm, I'm thinking about Hemel in your book. Mm, yeah. And, you know, I think it's really important to say that every person has their own story and their own different response to what happens to them. Um, but what did happen, what several people that I interviewed spoke about was having a really early, very painful loss, not really having the emotional uh, maturity perhaps to really mourn that loss and to, to kind of have to grow up very suddenly into an adult when they were still a child. And that may have left them feeling like an adult when they were a child, but when they were an adult, it left them feeling like something was missing, something very important. Um, and yeah, I think that that was something really important that came up again and again, this sense of kind of having to be an adult too young um, and how that can leave you feeling quite stuck later in life. 
And and Moya Sano, you were working as a journalist while writing this book, but this revelation about your sense of self around adulthood kind of led you down a new career path into the field of psychoanalysis. And and psychotherapy started to fill in some of the blanks for you about where those feelings of incompleteness may have come from for you personally and for others. What did this process teach you about your own identity? Yeah, so when I um, had that experience with the maggots, um, I was uh, also training to be a psychotherapist. So this was all happening as I was learning about different theories of development in childhood and in adulthood. Uh, And I was also in psychoanalysis, learning about myself at the same time. And I think that, you know, it's such an extraordinary experience, or it can be, um, to be in psychoanalysis and and learning things about yourself and your unconscious that you just never knew, you know, things you don't like about yourself, surprises about yourself, realizing that things in the past that you'd kind of forgotten about are actually still really having an impact on you. And it was really that process that made me think a bit differently about adulthood. And what I found was in speaking to, you know, my, um, I think you call them everyday people. I love that expression. Um, they, they often used me like a therapist, even though we weren't doing therapy, but they, you know, I was asking them questions and they were able to face up to certain truths about themselves that they hadn't been before. So actually interviewing them was a really emotional experience for both of us. I think it taught you and- a lot. I mean, I'm I, one character who comes um, in and out in your book is 20-year-old Baru. Please tell mm. me about him and what you taught him and what he taught you. Yeah, I mean, he is a really remarkable young man. Um When I spoke to him the first time, he was addicted to drugs and, you know, they just had such a grip on his life. And he's such a a kind of tender, sensitive, uh, compassionate person. And, you know, the kind of person where he spoke very softly and you just wanted to listen really, really hard because you didn't want to miss anything. but there was this sense of kind of like I was holding my breath when I was listening to him because I just thought, oh, I hope you can find your way out of this. You know, he felt so trapped and he was still so young, but he he couldn't kind of get out and live his life because he was so trapped by this addiction. Um, but I then saw him again as once I'd finished the book. Um, and I don't, I don't want to give away any spoilers because I do want your readers to, your listeners to read the book. Um, but uh, it turned out that our conversation had been very meaningful for him as well, and he'd been able to use that conversation in quite remarkable ways to kind of push through from that, away from that stuck place, and really to grow up. I mean, it was, it was like when I saw him again, it was like everything that I'd learned about growing up 
and adulthood I'd kind of saw before me in this young man. It was really remarkable. I should say there's an incredible amount of depth in this book. I mean, I think you spoke with 45 different people um, mm-hmm. from all ages, stages, ranges, expertise. Um, otherwise, I mean, for instance, you know, Sarah Jane Blackmore, she's a neuroscientist. What did she teach you about the differences or not between the adult brain and the adolescent brain? Yeah, I mean, you know, part of kind of the joy and privilege of being a journalist is that you can just write to people and ask if they'll, you know, answer your questions. And that was just such a wonderful experience speaking to her because she's such a world expert on the adolescent brain. Um, And I thought, great, so she'll be able to tell me, you know, what is an adult? She'll be able to say, well, on a brain scan, you can see this if it's an adult brain and this if it's not an adult brain. Um, And I was really surprised to discover that she couldn't say any of that. And, you know, part of it, I actually learned from that, that part of being an adult is being aware of what you cannot know, you know, being aware of your limits um, and the limits of our knowledge. And you actually can't tell an adult brain just by looking at a brain scan. And it's much fuzzier than that. And as it is, in every other aspect of adult life, you know, we don't just become adults when we turn 18, as all of your uh, listeners who have texted in uh, can testify. I, I have some more texts uh, to read out, Moya. Emma says, every year I successfully register the car, I mentally tick the adult box. I think adulting <laughs> is knowing when you need therapy. I think that's probably true, isn't it, Moya? <laughs> and um, another listener says, uh, being called up for the National Service in 1968 was a huge existential event for me at 20 years of age. Can I do this? Am I grown up enough to survive this? Moya Sana, one of the things that you acknowledge in your book is that this is a very Western problem. Um, One of the researchers you mentioned in your book interviewed women in rural China about their markers of adulthood. What did they find? Yes, it was very interesting. And, you know, I I don't claim to be an expert on this at all. Um, But she did find that they had very different um, uh, kind of criteria for thinking about adulthood. So, Well, whereas the Western criteria tended to be more about the self um, and kind of taking responsibility for oneself, um, the criteria that the young women she interviewed um, spoke about were more about being able to take care of children, taking care of parents um, and kind of being able to support um, a family through a, a career. So, yeah, that was really interesting. Roxy Legain, she was another person you spoke to. She talks about how racism impacts the experience of growing into adulthood. What did she teach you? Yeah, it was um, really powerful speaking to her. Roxy Legain is, um, she started this organisation, Kids of Colour, and she supports young people of colour in Manchester. And... It was fascinating for me as a white woman, uh, you know, it was really important for me to listen to the extra complications that young people of colour have to face as they're growing up and entering the working world. The difficulties that racism introduces into their lives just at that point where you're kind of supposed to be finding the freedom of who you are. But, you know, at the same time that that kind of conversation about racism can take over everything. And then there's no space uh, to talk about kind of the joy of being who they are. 
so yeah, that was really fascinating. But also hearing how for her personally, finding her role in life, you know, supporting these young people, being an activist, finding that really enabled her to grow up. And, and that was something that came through with all of the experts that I spoke to really, that discovering their kind of purpose and their mission in life was a really important part of growing up for them. And you discovered along the way that really this this ambivalent feeling around adulthood can continue right into old age. We think we've got time to talk about one more person, Pogue, who you spoke to yes. in her 90s. What did she teach you about the unfinished business of adulthood? Well, I mean, she Pogue is just the most wonderful woman and we've stayed in touch and, you know, I really value that friendship. The way she talked about not feeling like an adult, not feeling fully grown up, made me realize that this thing that I'd been telling myself off for the whole time, it's actually in some ways a blessing because if you can hold on to that space of to develop further, if growing up is a process that never stops until you die, then as she put it, that's a kind of immortality. <laughs> you know, that's that's a kind of excitement of of being alive. You know, adulthood not as a finish line where you stop developing, but almost as the start point where life begins and you really start to discover yourself. I mean, she spoke about losing her husband at age 85 when she was 85 and how that was kind of when she started to feel a bit more grown up at Amaz age 85. Amazing yeah. age 85 and what a beautiful picture mm -hmm. that leaves me with. Moya Sana, thank you so much for joining Life Matters. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a real privilege to listen and speak to your listeners. And Moya Sana is a fully trained psychotherapist and an author, and her book is called When I Grow Up, Conversations with Adults in Search of Adulthood. next edition of Life Matters, we tackle two major challenges for women. First, managing the transition that comes with perimenopause. We'll hear from former Dolly magazine cover girl, Alison Daddo, about how she's navigated that. And how to maintain the health of your pelvic floor. Mental kegels, anyone? I'll catch you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.